A very good morning to you all. If you're new to the church or just visiting, then I would just like to extend to you a particularly warm welcome. We're so glad that you've joined with us this morning. I'll just introduce myself very quickly to you, and then we'll get into the Word of God together. So I'm Mark. I'm married to Deb. We have four children and a couple of grandchildren. And over the years, we have kept a number of animals, including goats, an orphaned lamb, chickens, ducks, but now we just have a dog, a couple of geese, and a couple of beehives. <laughs> we joined NLCC almost exactly a year ago to the day. However, we've always had a deep affection for the church right from its very beginning, since many of those who were the original core team used to worship with us at King's Church in Ringwood, where I served as an elder for a little over 10 years. So I said we've been part of NLCC for about a year, and Deb and I just want to quickly express our gratitude for the way that you guys in Wimborne have welcomed us, and we are loving seeing how God is working amongst us all. And I'm really excited about what he might want to do in and through us as we journey together. And now, as one church working across multiple locations, we're today starting a new preaching series so if you see the name Mark flashing up there, I just want to know that's not me embarking on some massive ego trip. But, but in fact, it's just letting you know that we are today starting a new series in the Gospel of Mark. So can I invite you to turn with me into the New Testament and to the Gospel of Mark? And whilst you're doing that, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background. The author doesn't directly identify himself. However, it's widely accepted that the book was written by John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. He's referred to in Acts chapter 12 and 15, in Colossians chapter 4 and Philemon chapter 24. He traveled with the apostle Paul on his first missionary journey. But apparently he deserted Paul on the way home, and that caused Paul to kind of fall out with Barnabas whilst they were planning Paul's second trip. But it looks like they kind of made it up because Paul gives special mention to Mark in three of his letters. And it's evident, too, that Mark had a close relationship with the Apostle Peter, because he mentions him in his first letter, calling Mark his son. And it's therefore been suggested that Mark had access to Peter's first-hand accounts of Jesus from Peter's own testimony. And since Mark appears to have to explain various Jewish customs to his readers or listeners, it's argued that he's mainly addressing non-Jews, and therefore, in all likelihood, he was originally writing to the church in Rome. Now, Mark's gospel is very different to the others. He misses the birth of Jesus out completely, and he kind of just jumps straight to the action. And in fact, much of, Mark's, much of Mark's emphasis is on action. Jesus acting in power and in authority, acting amongst the people. And his gospel is far less about Jesus' private instruction or teaching of his disciples. It's all about action. So let's get straight to the action. Let's read together from Mark's gospel in chapter 1 and starting at verse 1. And we're going to read as far as verse 20.
the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. And confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As if for emphasis, yeah. <laughs> Baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. And after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that this is food and life for us. Lord, help me to so speak and help us all to hear Give us ears to hear and hearts and minds to understand and apply what you want to say to your people today. For Jesus' sake, amen. So Mark starts his gospel by telling his listeners or readers that the message he has for us is good news. And he wastes no time in telling us that this good news is all about Jesus. So right from the outset, he places Jesus front and center. The good news, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This is so foundational that we could be tempted to overlook it in its simplicity. But it's absolutely crucial. The good news, it's all about Jesus. So I want to introduce some key themes that are going to run through the book because Mark kind of alludes to them right at the beginning. These being who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how people should respond. 
Now, depending on your translation, your Bible might say it slightly differently, but I'm reading from the New International Version, so it might say good news, or it might say gospel. But in Greek, it's the word evangelion, which is where we get the English word evangelize from. It's a Greek word that was in common use to herald a really significant event in world history. So, for example, it was the same word that was used to announce the birth of Augustus Caesar. But Mark takes this word and he applies it to the person and to the ministry of Jesus. It was a word used to describe an event that might be generation-defining in a positive sense, an event to be celebrated. So perhaps one might say that the moon landing or England actually winning the World Cup in 1966. These were significant events in our history to be celebrated, a bit before my time. Or or the Berlin Wall coming down, that one I do remember. These are not perfect examples, I grant, but I'm just trying to give you a flavor of the kind of events that this word gospel was used for. When Mark uses it, he takes it to like a whole new level there's never been good news like this before. This isn't just a generation-defining event. This is a history-defining event. The most significant event ever in world history. An event not to just define one generation, but every generation. It has to be, doesn't it, if the Christian claims are, are true? If we believe in the event that we've just been celebrating over Christmas, if God really did clothe himself in a human body and walk on the earth that he himself had created and then die in the place of those he had created in his likeness, then that surely has to be the most significant event ever in history. As one commentator puts it, Mark is announcing an event after which the history of the world will never again be the same. Now, at the time of Jesus, the Jews had been waiting for hundreds of years to hear from God. They were waiting for their messianic king to come and to deliver them, to rescue them. So to be told, as it's written in verse 15, that the kingdom of God was at hand, that it had come near, that it arrived... That had to be the best news ever, if it was to be believed. So in verse 1, right at the beginning of his book, Mark makes it very clear who he believes that this Jesus is. He's the long-awaited Messiah, or Christ. They both mean the same thing. He's Jesus the Christ, or Messiah. Jesus being a, a relatively common Jewish name, meaning Yahweh is salvation. And the Greek word Christ, that's a title rather than a surname. And it means the same thing as the Hebrew term Messiah. It means anointed one. One chosen and anointed by God to rescue or deliver his people. This is the one that the Jewish nation had been waiting for for so long in the hope that they'd be rescued from the hands of their oppressors which at the time of Jesus happened to be the Romans. Mark makes it clear that Jesus was the one that they'd all been waiting for. 
even though Jesus was a very different type of saviour from the one that his people were expecting. But Mark doesn't stop there. He kind of goes a step further. He states that the one chosen anointed by God was no less than the Son of God. This is going to become a major theme in the gospel. We're going to see it in chapters 3, 8, 9, 12, 13, 14, and 15. There's something different about Jesus. He's the unique son of the living God. So after dropping this little bombshell, Mark introduces John the Baptist, quoting from Isaiah, and also, incidentally, from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and possibly also Exodus chapter 3, verse 20, but for some reason Mark decides not to mention that. But I want us to notice that Mark does do something really interesting with these Old Testament scriptures. So Malachi wrote, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. That's Malachi 3 verse 1. But in Mark's gospel, the way before me becomes your way. And similarly, Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. But in Mark, that becomes for him. Do you see that? What it looks like Mark is doing here, and he's not alone in this, but what it looks like he's doing is he's taking statements about God from the Scriptures and applying them to the person of Jesus. It's like he's taking a highlighter pen and underlining a statement about the divinity of Jesus. It's like he's writing in big capital letters, Jesus is God. Talk about bombshell. And the other thing that Mark appears to be doing here in introducing John the Baptist as the messenger prophesied in Malachi and the one calling in the wilderness in Isaiah is to remind us that John the Baptist is part of God's plan and purpose in making preparation for Jesus to be revealed as the anointed saviour king. So do you see the link here? Isaiah writes about the one calling in the wilderness. Then Mark says something along the lines of, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, depending on your translation. So John is presented as a messenger, but he's just the messenger. He baptizes with water as a symbol of cleansing. His is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But he's really keen to signpost those that he baptizes towards Jesus. There's someone coming, someone coming far more worthy than I. I'm just preparing the way for the Lord. I'm just the messenger, effectively is what John's saying. I'm just the messenger. He is the message. He is the living message. So John's making it clear that whilst he himself was a prophet, kind of in the mold of the prophets of the Old Testament. But Jesus is something different. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. Now there's really so much that we could draw out of these verses today. But I just want to come back and look at these key things that are being established here. It's about who Jesus is. It's about what he came to do. And it's about how people should respond to him. 
if we were in any doubt who Mark thinks Jesus is, we have this testimony about Jesus' own baptism. Mark doesn't go into it as much, into as much detail, perhaps, as the other gospel writers. But we do have this little gem. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Let it just rest there for a minute. You are my son. There you have it. Jesus being presented as the unique son of the living God. And from this, Mark mentions Jesus being tempted in the desert. Again, he doesn't spend an awful lot of time on it. Instead, he moves quickly on to Jesus starting out in his ministry and calling his first disciples. It's kind of typical of Mark. Verse 12, at once. Can you see the pace that Mark's moving? There's urgency in this. It's like another of Mark's apparently favorite words. Immediately, at once. It's all action. Now, moving now to the purpose of God, the purpose of Jesus, what he came to do. He came to usher in a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. So reading verses 14 and 15 again, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus comes proclaiming, announcing the good news, this history-defining event that the time has come, the kingdom of God has arrived. And we, we need to understand what's meant by kingdom because it's not a geographical kingdom, but it's about the rule and the reign of God. We've been singing about that. Hallelujah, our God reigns. So it's not a geographical place. It's not about where you live. It's about who you're ruled by. So when Jesus follows it up by saying, repent and believe, what he's saying is, the way that you show that you believe the good news is by turning back to God and submitting to his reign, allowing him to be the Lord over all your life. And the absolutely amazing thing about this kingdom is that Jesus invites frail, fallen, and broken human beings like you and me to not only enter into it, but partner with him in its expansion. The Bible, it's a story of how God makes his creation into a glorious kingdom it started in the Garden of Eden and the intention was that it would go out to the very ends of the earth so that there would be this global kingdom where people could live in relationship with God and flourish under his rule and reign. But as a result of man's fall, the goodness of God's creation was tarnished, cursed. And if the world, world that God created was ever going to be made into this glorious kingdom that he'd intended that curse would have to be reversed and everything made new. So that's what Jesus is talking about when he says that the time has come and the kingdom of God has come. He's saying that the curse is going to be reversed. Lives are going to be made new. And I love how Jeremy Treat 
describes it, writing for the Gospel Coalition. The Bible is a rescue story. Not about God rescuing sinners from a broken creation, but about him rescuing them for a new creation. God's reign begins in the human heart, but it will one day extend to the very ends of the earth. Many Christians today think of salvation as leaving earth for heaven, but the story of Scripture is quite the opposite. The message of the kingdom is not an escape from earth to heaven, but God's reign coming from heaven to earth. I love that. So when Jesus calls his first disciples, that's what he's calling them into. He's inviting them. That's Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. He's inviting them to partner with him in proclaiming that God is doing a new thing. That's what Jesus is saying when he invites them to follow him and become fishers of men. He's ushering in a kingdom where God rules and reigns. It starts in human hearts, but it's going to go out to the very ends of the earth. Now, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, apparently, they don't need to think twice. Mark says, at once, at once, they left their nets and followed him. There's that sense of urgency again. And it continues when Jesus sees James and John. Without delay, he called them. And it doesn't look like they hung around either because they left their poor dad in the boat with the servants to follow Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that really challenging. Jesus speaks, they act. He calls, they follow. Just like that, or so it seems. I've been challenged by that. Perhaps some of you are being challenged by that right now. But I'm just going to park that for a sec. There's so much more we could say about these verses. But we're just kind of starting out on this journey. My purpose today is to kind of bring an introduction to the book of Mark, to provide a little bit of context and background and to kind of introduce some of these key themes of the gospel. So before I, I draw this message to a close... There is an account that appears in all three of the synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm just going to read Matthew's account, but you'll also find it in Mark chapter 8, Luke chapter 9. But this is how Matthew tells it in Matthew 17, verses 13 through 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now I wonder if there could ever be a more important question. Who do you say? Jesus is. Mark has been establishing his belief in the sovereignty and the deity of Jesus. And Simon Peter is in complete agreement. He uses almost exactly the same language. When Jesus asks him that question, he replies, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So right from the outset, we are being reminded of exactly who it is that we worship.
He is unlike anyone else. He's the son of the living God. And he's come to usher in a new day. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. It's at hand. It has arrived. And it starts in the hearts of fallen, but redeemed and renewed human beings. And one day will reach the very ends of the earth. And when Jesus says, as he does to everyone he, either here this morning or listening to a recording, when he says, come and follow me, that's what he's calling us into. He's calling us into partnership with him. And we've seen how Peter, Andrew, James and John responded. So how are we going to respond this morning? In preparation for this message, this is what I believe God placed upon my heart. Firstly, perhaps there are some either here this morning or perhaps listening to a recording and you've heard the invitation of Jesus to follow him. Maybe you've never accepted that invitation. Perhaps you're saying something along to yourself along the lines of, well, if Jesus knew what I was really like, he wouldn't want me. The thing is, he does. Jesus knows exactly what each of us is like. He loves us anyway. And he wants you to be a part of this wonderful thing that he's doing. So I'm just going to stop for a minute and pray. If there's anyone here this morning or you're listening to a recording, I'm going to pray and I want you to pray this in your heart. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are king. You are sovereign. And Lord, we acknowledge that we have not always lived in a way that has pleased you. We have sinned against you. And we come, Lord, and we, we want to say we're sorry for that. And we want to repent and turn our back on the way that we've lived. We believe in Jesus. We believe that he died in our place. He bore the penalty that was ours. He died the death that we should have died so that we might live. And Holy Spirit, we say, come and live in us so we can live out a life to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you've responded to that prayer, I'd love to hear about that afterwards. Or if you're, if you're listening to a recording, perhaps get in contact with us through the website. But what about the rest of us? I have to admit that I myself have been really challenged by this message. I've been challenged by the willingness of the disciples to respond to Jesus. Now, I know they weren't perfect, but I've really been challenged by the fact that Jesus spoke and they apparently acted immediately. Perhaps that's spoken to you too. Or perhaps you've been challenged by the urgency in the way that Mark writes. Perhaps you feel an urgency to see kingdom breakthrough. Salvations, perhaps. Maybe God has given you a real heart to take this good news to people that really need to hear it. People really need to hear good news. Or perhaps you felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit when I talked about the rule of reign of Jesus, starting in the hearts of broken but redeemed people. Perhaps you've accepted Jesus as Savior, but you know that there are areas of your life where you haven't allowed him to be Lord completely. Now, Whatever your situation, I just want to encourage you. There is grace for you.
Bible tells us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you're hearing his voice today, can I encourage you to be like those first disciples? Don't hesitate. Come to Jesus. So we're going to worship again in a moment. But if you fall into any of those categories and you'd like prayer, then Deb and I would love to pray with you. We'd like to stand with you in that. But let's just open this up to the Holy Spirit now. There's other things he might want to do this morning. Otherwise, grace and peace be with you all. Amen.